Blog Talk Radio. Hey, everybody. Hey, how's everybody doing? This is Kimberly with Black Free Thinkers. And we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Again, this is Kim of Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. So how's everybody doing? It's been a while since I've done a show and on the last show, you know, I was talking about some of the things that were taking place in my life. And, you know, it's been a real interesting journey, if you will, Um, still dealing with some of the same issues. But, you know, it seems to be a little easier now. Uh, you know, but I guess, you know, time does help one to kind of navigate, again, it's about navigating the feelings and understanding where you are in your life and what's going on and just, you know, living, living. So, you know, some of the older people, they will tell you that your perspectives on life will change. You just have to live a little, right? And that's absolutely true. You know, there's a lot of truth to that. And so, you know, we're doing it one day at a time. You know, I told you all about how I lost someone that was really dear and precious to me and you know, we've been trying to inch along. You know, I talked to most of the kids this week, and, you know, they're doing good. They're doing fine. So, you know, that's assuring or reassuring. You know, just let me know that, you know, she instilled a lot in them. She poured a lot of herself into them, and I see her when I look at them. So, you know, we're moving along, but... Thank you all for being patient with me. I'm going to try to get back into the podcast, you know, doing it regularly. It's a bunch of other stuff that I actually want to do that, you know, you know I'm going to push myself to um, do some things, you know, do more this year as far as social media is concerned, trying to get myself back on that track. I did a little Twitter chat on the POCBF, a couple of weeks ago, I got to get consistent again and, you know, continue moving forward with what I am trying to achieve. So, so far, things are, you know, improving. And, you know, I talked a little bit about how someone very, very close to me is going through, you know, a medical issue. And we're working with them and helping them to get through this because, You know, that's what you do for people that you love and people that love you and want to see nothing but the absolute best for you and in you. So, again, thank you guys for your patience. Um, I've been wanting to start this series for a while. And this particular series, I want to talk about um, Christianity in America Now, today's show is titled, White Christian America, Good Old Days, right? 
But, um, you know, we're going to talk about a number of things. Let me go ahead, and I'm not going to read the show notes yet. There are a few things that I wanted to talk about ever so briefly in my own way that has transpired. It's been so much happening over the past month that it's kind of hard to keep up with it. But in addition to that, trying to prioritize, you know, what I do want to talk about. But, yeah, I've been posting a little bit more, you know, still a bunch of stuff that I haven't posted. But um, it's been interesting. You know, I'm going to talk briefly about what happened in New York and with this judge, you know, the first woman Muslim judge. And from my understanding, from what I read, she held, you know, politicians, police officers, people of, you know, that have power. She held them to a higher standard, and she was hard on them, and she judged them accordingly. Well, she died, and she was in the river. They found her body in the river. Initially, they were reporting it as a suicide, but since then, (laughs) um, basically, they've taken a different tone on it, if you will. Now they're ruling it as suspicious and possibly a homicide. And so, of course, you know, many of us, when we first saw the story, you know, it didn't make any sense to us as to why this woman would commit suicide. And so we had question marks all over that. And now that they're kind of changing things around, you know, this is going to be an interesting case to watch. So um, keep an eye on it especially with the, you know, anti-Muslim rhetoric that's taking place in this country as well as around the world, and we'll talk about that in a minute, what's happening in Paris because they're having the election today. And Madame Le Pen, or Marie Le Pen, that's her name, but I just say Madame Le Pen, is running. And the polls should be closing. Well, they should be closed already. I think we'll have some results within the next 45 minutes to an hour and a half. And, um, yeah, guys, you know, you need to pay attention to that. Pay attention to, you know, what's happening because personally, and again, this is just me, I find it interesting that all of a sudden, you know, you have these people committing suicide. And, um, whoops, sorry about that. You probably heard an echo there. My apologies. I'm sorry, not committing suicide. You know, um, these terrorists, the so-called terrorist acts happening in Paris. So we'll get back to that. And I know I just switched all around, all over the place. Sorry about that. Um, I'm doing a couple of things in the background. I got a little distorted. But we'll get to that. But going back to the New York judge, just keep up with what's happening there. And, um, yeah, just kind of keep your eye on that. Definitely you want to keep your eye on what's going on there. Um, Briefly, I wanted to mention what happened with Steve Stevens, um, the gentleman, well, not gentleman, but the, the man that killed 
that older black gentleman in cold blood on Facebook. And what was so interesting about that is when that happened, you had people on Facebook um, calling him mentally ill or saying that what he did was, you know, a mental illness. You had some people out here (laughs) attacking women, but notably attacking the woman you know, that was his girlfriend that apparently they had broken up. And so you had people out here attacking her, and basically they they pestered and blamed her so much that she was, and this is my opinion, she was bullied into making a press release and defending herself. And I don't feel that she should have had to do that because what he did, was on him. That had absolutely nothing to do with her. Those were his choices. So anyway, I posted a blog on my wall, and the title of the article is Don't Blame Mental Illness for Steve Stevens. Blame Toxic Masculinity. Again, don't blame mental illness for Steve Stevens. Blame Toxic Masculinity. And this is on the Unfit Christian blog. So, you know, um, you may want to go over there and take a look. I know we've talked about toxic masculinity on this show um, several times, and we've also talked about mental illness and how people scapegoat, you know, mentally ill people, you know, especially if there are any shootings, mass shootings, or anything that is unexplainable or or you people just don't understand the why or the reasons for it, they automatically label, you know, some of these people as mentally ill. And so, you know, it's really interesting. But, yeah, you want to talk about go and look up hypermasculinity, toxic masculinity, um, you know, the problem with it here in America. I mean, it's happening all over the world, but I live in America and I know what I see here. And, you know, one of the conversations that I saw going around now, you know, incidents like this, what it does is it sparks conversations, which are much needed. Unfortunately, I see too many people talking at each other as opposed to talking with each other. And, you know, we have to be very careful about that type of thing, you know, because, again, a conversation. You say something, they listen, then they respond, and then you listen. However, you know, again, I don't believe any of us are qualified to deem this Steve Stevens as mentally ill. And what's so interesting, again, you know, you have people that want to not have this conversation about toxic masculinity, you know, and just kind of segueing into another topic here. It's interesting with the new Google or YouTube platform, oh, they are shutting down shows of some of these toxic men, if you will. But not only that, they're shutting down, you know, um, the funding as far as how um, you can kind of fund yourself, the monetary rewards of being on YouTube and having a loyal following. And, you know, so there's been some major changes taking place over there because advertisers are demanding a change. 
you know, Disney is the one I believe that really um, got the attention of the Google folks. So, you know, there are some men out there, you know, and I'll go ahead and say it because, you know, people know, they know where I stand. You have people like Tommy Sotomayor, um, Tariq Nasheed, Umar Johnson, and a number of other, you know, black men out there that absolutely are toxic, in my opinion. And, you know, there seems to be kind of like this common thread in a hatred for black women, you know. And so there's a lot of patriarchy, misogyny, and all of that wrapped into one. And what was interesting about Steve Stevens was immediately when I saw his picture, you know, I made some assumptions like most other people do. You know, I'm not perfect, but um, I need to look, read a little bit more into his background. You know, I purposefully didn't do that because, again, I didn't want to make assumptions, but eh, some things were a little obvious, but, you know, I'm going to leave that alone and move on. But if you really want to know a little bit more about some of the think pieces that are out there and why there's a different spin on it, particularly in communities of color. Yeah, look up toxic masculinity, look up hyper-masculinity um, and conversations that definitely need to be had in the black community. I'll add on to that. Let's talk about religion and black masculinity religion and toxic masculinity, which is, a, you know, another set of conversations that need to be had. As You know, as far as I'm concerned, it's the same conversation. You know, I just feel that if you're going to talk about that, that it should be balanced, you know, and, and not to say that the secular community doesn't have toxic masculinity or hyper-masculinity. Yes, they do. However, um, you know, a lot of that type of conversation and rhetoric is not um, readily heard or heard often. And so I feel this is a way that, you know, these different perspectives can be factored into the conversation. But not only toxic masculinity and hypermasculinity in a Christian community, also, you know, the Muslim community and also in, you know, other communities of religion. Because, you know, this is not just relegated to Christianity. So I just wanted to throw my, you know, few cents in that and, you know, ask you guys to go out and educate yourself on that. And, you know, what's so interesting is, you know, for a long time, really since the very beginning of this show, but more so in the last few years, I've talked about being fed up with you know, mainstream society, and especially some of these mainstream movements and groups, you know, that are out here in cultures. And what's so interesting is that someone posted an article um, in the New York Times, and it was a woman, and she was talking about being a black woman and being fed up with mainstream America. It actually was a great article. I would ask you guys to go out and look it up and read it. 
you know, I'm looking for the article now so I can give you the complete title of it. It says, the title is, To Be Black, Female, and Fed Up with the Mainstream. Again, To Be Black, Female, and Fed Up with the Mainstream. And, you know, they talk about feminism of the past and feminism as of today. Um, the author is Holland Cotter, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, Cotter, C-O-T-T-E-R. And so, you know, when it first starts out, it's talking about Dana Schultz's painting of Emmett Till and the controversy that, you know, was generated around that particular art piece. But as you read the story more, it talks about the feminist movement, right? And, you know, you have the first wave, the second wave, and I guess we're currently in the third wave. So it talks about that, and it talks about black women and how we're a little wary, if you will, a little skeptical and cautious when dealing with the white feminist community. And how something that we've talked about on this show how during the 60s and 70s, we can add the 50s in there, how many black feminists were pressured to choose between the feminist movement and the civil rights black power movement. And it hits on it a little bit, and it talks about why we are so cautious and why many of us are wary of the white feminist community. Because, you know, we've been thrown under the bus. You know, as soon as some of these groups achieve whatever goal or agenda they may have, then they tend to throw us under the bus or tell us, no, we got ours this way. Now you have to do it your way. You know, it is so interesting. But I'm going to talk a little bit about solidarity and all of that a little bit later in the show. But I thought that this was a great great article, and it gives you a reference to a book that's been released, and the name of the book is We Wanted a Revolution, Black Radical Women, 1965 through 1985. So go and take a look. You know, again, you know, I recommend books all the time. This is something that's now on my wish list and I will be purchasing it in the future. I had someone recommend to me that I put my wish list out there and let people buy some of this stuff for me. But, no, I'd rather have you take your money and use it towards social justice, community, grassroots organizations locally. And specifically, I want you to give to black and brown you know, an Asian and indigenous grassroots, you know, organizations out there support these activists. You know, um, there's a group here in Chicago by the name of Umedics, and what they do is they are first responders. So when you have shootings and and you know knifings and different, you know. Um, issues. I mean, even with some of the protests that have turned violent and people were hurt, <clears throat> excuse me, Umedics was out there. And what they do is they go and they treat the wounds. You know, they've treated 
you know, gunshot wounds, and they've saved some lives. And they go into the communities and they teach a lot of these young people, as well as some of the older people, they teach them what to do in situations such as that. And so, you know, if you all get a chance, you know, maybe reach out. I know they have a Facebook group out there, and it's called U-Medics, right, for Ujama Medics, but U-Medics, and reach out to them. You know, send them some donations, some first aid kits. You know, um, one of the suggestions that I made to them a long time ago is to have jump sacks ready. So that, you know, when something like that happens, they just grab one of the backpacks and go running, you know. And so, you know, there are some that are leaders, so, of course, they should have more equipment. But, you know, the junior members should have backpacks, too, or jump sacks. So, guys, if you get a chance, go check them out. Send some love their way. I know they can use the equipment. They can use the supplies. Send it their way, you know. Um there's a UU church, and it's interesting because every year I sponsor plots under People of Color Beyond Faith, so we've done this for the past few years, and I'm going to do it again this year, and, you know, because I see they just put the mulch and all of that stuff down. I was going past, you know, the other day, and, you know, I had every intention of going to one of their services today. But, you know, me and Bedside Baptist kind of have this thing going on right now. So getting up early in the morning, you know, it's kind of difficult for me at times. But I do support this particular UU church because it's a community garden. They have signs up telling people to take what they want, take what they need. And, you know, a couple of years ago, they took the yield of the um, garden and they gave it to a Catholic church with the French nuns, and they would take that food and feed the community. And so last year, the UU church, they cooked the food. And then they went out and fed the community, which is very important. But also, you got to remember this garden, or you don't know, so let me explain that. This garden is in the middle of, you know, a poor black community. And so they tell them, take what you want, take what you need. And I've seen people do that. You know, and it's just, you know, the humanity behind that is great. So, you know, I will put more information out about that a little bit later. You know, I want to talk to the coordinator a little bit more about what they have going on this year. But, yeah, you know, invest that money in local black, brown, yellow, and red you know, um, organizations. And the main reason why I'm not saying mainstream organizations is because they have no problem raising money. I've seen white people put out a GoFundMe or Indiegogo and raise $50,000 in a matter of 10 minutes. And so they will be fine. It's the, you know, the marginalized community. When when they put out this information, they have a hard time, you know, getting donations in, you know, especially if they're asking for a significant amount of money. So, again, I want you guys to go out and um, look around, ask questions, talk to people, understand why this is needed. 
and why it's so important for you to get involved and get to know the people that are making a difference and making a change on the local level. You know, it kind of plays into my mindset in regards to politics now. I mean, I've always stressed on this show that I do believe in registering to vote, and I do believe in voting. However, with this last presidential election, kind of left me jaded quite a bit. And so, you know, it, the whole thing is interesting, but what happens on a local level has a more direct impact and bearing on your life. So you need to know who your mayor is, you know, who the sheriff is, who the constable is, the commissioners, you know, the governor, the state legislators. And you need to get out and to vote for that in addition to registering to vote so that you will be eligible to sit on a jury for jury duty. And so, you know, it's just it's important for you all to understand that. And I know some people are saying, well, I can't sit on a jury. I have to work every day, and I can't afford to miss work. And I understand that. And there's no judgment for that because, you know, many of us, that was the reality in our lives. You know, and it doesn't matter if it's a one or a parent home. You know, nowadays having two people working is still not covering, you know, the bills. It's still not covering what it needs. So people, you know, you do what you need to do, but um, for those that can and are able to sit on a jury or at least go for, you know, the initial when they sit you down and decide, you know, if if they want to have you on that jury, show up. Please show up if you can. You know, again, I definitely, you know, tell people if you can't afford to be there, you know, you need to let them know that it creates a hardship for you. So, and and you have people that ignore it. Can't do that because there are... Um, penalties for that. So, uh, you know, you don't want to see yourself being in any type of legal trouble because you ignored that. So, you know, take some time out to read it. So anyway, I posted, like I said, quite a bit this week on a lot of different articles. Um, There was one article in particular, and it was talking about, you know, intellectual racism. And this is something that's been around for a while. This is not new. And the title of the article is The Renaissance of Intellectual Racism, and it was written by Nicole Hemmer. Again, Nicole Hemmer, H-E-M-M-E-R. Now, this is the thing. Um, This is nothing new. This is nothing new. If you go back and you read some of the pieces that were put out and some of the books that were put out, you know, this is going all the way back to the early 1900s and the late 1800s. And W.E.B. Du Bois, who's considered the father of social work, right, and, you know, he tackled the myth of black inferiority. He tackled the myth of black, you know, criminality. And, you know, there have been a lot of different situations in which people have used pseudoscience in a manner to discredit black people or to, 
um, justify their views of black inferiority, right? And so, you know, you had people, you know, I know Raina and I talked about phrenology on, you know, the show before. You know, they had people filling around on your head and, and saying that blacks had smaller brains. Therefore, they were inferior. I mean, there was a book out called The Bell Curve. And with that particular book, it was trying to justify that blacks were inferior. And what's so interesting is, you know, we're still fighting this fight, even though studies have shown that these particular ideologies or pseudoscience and what have you, that this is false, is is still pervasive. And we need to, you know, start pushing back on that a lot harder. And what's so interesting in this particular article, you know, there were several things that stood out. But um, in one particular paragraph, um, they were talking about this guy who was the founder and editor of American Renaissance, and his name is Taylor, Jared Taylor. And, you know, basically he was talking about the blacks and Hurricane Katrina, and he said blacks and whites are different. When blacks are left entirely to their own devices, Western civilization, any kind of civilization disappears. And so what was so interesting, one of the things I, you know, I talk about on the show from time to time is within New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, when blacks were going into the store to get food to feed themselves, they were called looters. And they were also called refugees. However, you know, Hurricane Andrew hit, and you had these white people going into the stores. Oh, they were just foraging for, you know, supplies and food. And, you know, how these stories are, you know, followed and reported differently. So anyway, um, there's a young man by the name of John Derbyshire, and he was a contributor to the National Review, which is, you know, Republican right-leaning, you know, magazine. It's been around forever. And so he published um, this article called The Talk, Non-Black Version. Again, The Talk, Non-Black Version. And he advised his children not to act the Good Samaritan to blacks in apparent distress. And instead, he told them to cultivate an intelligent black friend as an amulet against potentiality or potential, uh, potentially career-disturbing accusations of prejudice. And let me read that again. He told his children not to act the Good Samaritan to blacks in apparent distress, but to cultivate an intelligent black friend as an amulet against potentially career-destroying accusations of prejudice. And so what was so interesting about that particular part in this article is this is something that black people have been saying forever. You know, you know how you'll have white people and they'll say, well, I have black friends. You know, you know, are these the black friends that you cultivated to be intelligent? And, and I guess the intelligent part is for them to defend 
white supremacy and white privilege, but not necessarily understand or realize that that is what they're doing or to cultivate them into telling other black, well, not all white people are like that, or I have a white friend and they don't behave that way. You know, I came over to their house for the barbecue, you know, all this. Look, (laughs) this is something that happens often. And, you know, in certain cultures and groups, you know, that we have out there, you have, you know, a very small number, a minute percentage of people of color, particularly black people, that are members of those specific communities. And so you see these recruiting efforts, if you will, and you'll see certain people that they deemed as safe, being cultivated, being groomed, being trained, if you will, to be that buffer. Or as he said here, an amulet. And what's so interesting is, you know, many of us call them tokens. You know, what's so interesting about that is, unfortunately, you know, some of these black, brown, red, yellow people actually believe that they're special or that they're different because this is what they are being told by these mainstream people. And it's not that you're different or you're special. You're convenient. So if you all get a chance to go out there and read that article, again, The Renaissance of Intellectual Racism, it's actually a really good article. There's a lot in here that should be discussed but um, I don't have the time to do that today. But go out, check it out, and read it for yourself, and take what you need from the article. And I'm sitting here, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm sitting here so much more that I want to go over. But, yeah, go out and read that article to be black and, you know, to be fed up with the mainstream. And there are many of us that are at that point today. And this is why you hear me making comments about not having an interest, you know, going to certain types of conferences and conventions to talk to people about racism because you already know what's there. And so, you know, my point of contention is what are your actions? You're inviting these people to come in and talk about race and racism, to come in and talk about social justice, to come in and talk about a number of different topics specifically pertaining to communities of color. What are you doing afterwards? How are you helping these particular communities? In addition to that, how are you dealing with with the racism in your own communities? whether that's your friends, your family, your children, yourselves, you know, the the people in your organizations, the people that support you, you know, what are you doing to change these things? I need to see action. And then and only then will I even consider. And so, you know, it's, it's very important that 
we get to this point that we start holding mainstream America accountable. Because unfortunately, and you'll see this when you read, you know, the last couple of articles I mentioned, the intellectual racism and the fed up article, you'll see, you know, that you have these people who want to spout off these buzzwords, these trigger words, these code words, ally, diversity, and inclusion. They'll talk about it all day long, have two, three panels, have someone speak about it, and then they go back home, back to the status quo, but feeling as though they achieved something by just having the conversation. It takes more than a conversation, and this is what I've been trying to get through to people, and this is what I'm trying to get you to understand because, you know, we've had decades of conversations with very little progress. And in many cases where there was progress, that has been dialed back. And you all have heard me talking about black wealth and, you know, black influence and black power has, you know, been lost. You know, one of the more recent examples, 2007-2008, when we had the mortgage crisis, a lot of money, a lot of wealth was lost in black and brown communities. So anyway, you know, you go out, do some reading, figure it out, take a look at it. You know, I'm not done talking about these things, and I've talked about it in the past. I would recommend that you guys and look, you know, go back and look through the archives of the Black Free Thinker Show. And we've talked, you know, had specific you know, conversations, and I know I want to get more people on the show. It's just that for the past few years I've been dealing with some things, and it's it's just it's been nuts. So anyway, go out and look for that. I also posted an article talking about neutrality and how that particular neutrality, if you will, how it silences, you know, marginalized people. You know, it silences them, it oppresses them, it factors them out of the conversation. Um, you know, they're deemed, we're already invisible to a certain degree. But this basically, it justifies, you know, that invisibility, that silencing, that oppression. And we cannot allow that to happen. So look up neutrality silences marginalized people. Again, Neutrality Silences Marginalized People. It was written by Lewis Wallace. Again, that's Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, Wallace. And so in general, you know, I'm just going to give a real brief synopsis of this particular article. But, you know, it's talking about this, you know, white person that was, you know, a journalist and how... They, you know, where she would, you know, interview people in the community and write pieces on, you know, different issues happening in town. And basically, uh, in the age of Trump and Bannon, 
right, in this particular political and cultural climate that we're now experiencing via Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, that now people are being intimidated. There are people out here that are scared to talk about issues affecting, you know, communities of color, you know, affecting poor people, you know, and affecting, you know, just a number of different communities, LGBTQ, you know, Latino, you know, Arabic, the Muslim, and we can go on with that, you know, including the disabled community, right? And it talks about how people are so fearful in this particular you know, climate that they are now shielding themselves and hiding behind the the shield of being neutral, and how they see these injustices and atrocities taking place, but they've been intimidated into not saying anything about it at all, and how that further marginalizes these communities that need help, and sometimes they need others to be their voice because we have to remember that in some cases these people have been silenced for so long that they, you know, they don't know what to say. You know, the the, the language is not readily available or underdeveloped or just not damn developed at all. And so, you know, it's incumbent on those of us that, you know, we continue to go out here and we continue to speak, that we continue to point out these injustices and these wrongs. And so, you know, um, she was talking about how she lost her job, you know, and at first, you know, she would talk about these issues, but after she lost her job, she became fearful and 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 what brought this about? So you know, guys, go and take a look at that. And huh, you know, she had some you know one part of the article here. She was talking about things that she believed were on people's minds because why she talked to them. And you know, she said, "Does neutrality just maintain the status quo?" Yes, it does. Not only does it, you know, maintain a status quo, it also helps to dial back progress that has been made. You know, and of course the status quo, you know, white supremacy, white privilege, yet that is what they want. They want to stop this progress and dial it back. You know, and one of the things we're going to talk about on today's show when I get more into that particular topic is we're going to talk about nostalgia. We're going to talk about romanticizing the past because one of the things you hear a lot of these Trump supporters saying is they want to take things back to the way that they used to be. They want to make America great again, which means they want to make America white Again, white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, it doesn't even have to be moderately educated, just, you know, just just white, male, cisgendered, heterosexual, head of household, you know, patriarchal, a man's man. You know, this is what they want to take it back to. And 
In some cases, they're afraid. In other cases, you're just a jackass and you want to be in control. And so they fear what they don't understand. And basically that fear is anything that is not like them. That is where, you know, the xenophobia comes into play. And it's important that you guys, you know, you pay attention to what's happening, that you read the newspapers, that you, you know, watch and see what's happening. Now, there is a caveat to that. And, you know, I've grown into this over the years, you know, a lot of reading, a lot of research. I mean, even from the beginning of this show in 2011, if you go back and listen to some of the things that I said then, you know, I have had some evolutions. I've had some growth, you know, and and I'm not ashamed to admit that, you know, that some of the things that I believed and that I spoke, they were wrong. or they were problematic at in, in, at such certain junctures, right? And so, you know, I've had to correct that. And I'm not ashamed of that, and neither should you be. People make mistakes. People make errors. To know better is to do better. And that's one of the reasons why I encourage a lot of reading, you know, um, you know, I definitely believe in literacy, you know, for those that say that they don't have time to read. You have audio books, you know. You can do that. You know, many of you have these, you know, little, you know, um, smartphones with these different applications, and, you know, you just have so much technology available, readily available. So anyway, going back to this neutrality, you know, what's so interesting is that, you know, going back to the media and particularly mainstream media, you have to filter that out and you need to pay attention to what's happening because one of the things I need for you guys to understand is that a lot of these political pundits, these talking heads, a lot of them are actors, right, actors and actresses, and they are told what to cover and they are told how to cover it. And so, you know, the bias in the media, you know, that has been talked about forever as well. And so, you know, at this time where the technology is kind of allowing us to level the playing field to a certain degree, and, you know, and you hear me talking about leveling the playing field often, you know, it goes beyond leveling the playing field. You know, leveling the playing field makes it, you know, a little better, but it doesn't make it even. So, you know, again, I love me some Al Jazeera. I love BBC, especially when they're talking about what's happening in America. Um, they're a little bit more open. Um, you know, there are a lot of um, different journals, periodicals, newspapers, what have you, that are out there that are not that are not bowing to a lot of the propaganda that's fed to Americans. And so, you know, I would challenge you guys to go out and do some reading, not just to the few that, you know, I mentioned. There are many more. I enjoy the Young Turks as well. And you have a lot of black and brown you know, journalists out there that are working independently, support them, please. 
And, um, you know, unfortunately, I don't have a list right here in front of me, but on next week's show, if someone reminds me during the week, I'll make sure to compile a list, you know, and aggregate a nice list of different periodicals of independent black, brown, yellow, and red um, journalists and blogs out there that are reputable, right? So, you know, there's been a lot happening, but, yeah, read that article, you know, I was, you know, actually a little fascinated by some of the observations that were made in this particular article. So, yeah, I got to move on. I got to cover a few more things. Um, and, you know, what's so interesting is that you'll have a lot of people in their personal stances who will claim to be neutral. And, you know, they're neutral not because they don't have a viewpoint. They're neutral because they don't want to offend certain people. They don't want to ruffle the feathers of people who are in power, if you will, people who have empowered them, if you will, people who have financed them, if you will. So they hide behind the facade and the shield of neutrality until these people stop supporting them, until these people who are who are already dictating to them dictate something that that you know basically is you know the last hair on the camel's back or the final straw or what have you, however you want to look at that particular situation. And in some cases they're neutral until it happens to them. You know, um, you know, whether it's a situation with racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, um, anti-Islam, what have you. So anyway, enough of that. You know, I want to talk about, you know, some other things. Oh, yeah, in this thing with Korea, you know, you, I've seen a lot of people in different communities talking about Korea and, and saying Kim Jong-un is crazy and his dad and granddad and all of that, what I would challenge you guys to do is to do a history lesson. Go back, Google what did America do to Korea? Why are the North Koreans fanatical when they talk about Western society, specifically America? Go back and look up what we did to North Korea. And that's not justifying what's happening and what Kim Jong-un is saying, but it is giving some context to the situation. So go and look that up. I'm not going to talk about that much today, but, you know, we need to put all of these things in perspective. Um, Raina posted an article on my wall. I'm not sure if you all saw it. Well, I know some people can see it. Others can't because Raina has half of Facebook blocked. So anyway... <laughs> <laughs> so um, she put up an article about Alex Jones. And for those of you who aren't familiar with this particular situation, Alex Jones is going through a custody battle. And in this particular situation here, he's talking about the fact that he's an actor. You know, there's that word again. He's an actor and how 
his persona, his media persona, is performative. Come on now. Look it up. Read it. And some of you all aren't familiar with Alex Jones. And, you know, he does this program called InfoWars, and he has a really big influence on Trump and Bannon. You know, that not-so-dynamic duo. So look it up. Look up who he is. You know, again, it's performative. It's problematic. It's troubling. And it's scary. So that's enough of that. But, um, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening. Right now they're threatening a government shutdown. And one of the reasons for this is basically what they're trying to do is paint the Democrats in one corner, but then also paint the Republicans in the other corner. And so what the Republicans are threatening to do is take away funding or freeze, not take away, but freeze funding going to the states that assist poor people, you know, with many different programs, you know, with medical programs, with social safety net programs. And so in turn, by freezing that funding, a lot of poor and working class people will be hurt, and that's across the spectrum of race and ethnicities and what have you. But these people in particular, working class and poor people, will be hurt by withholding that money. And and the reason why they're doing that is because they're trying to force the Democrats into supporting, you know, their health care bill as well as other, you know, bills and policies that they're trying to put forth. So you need to pay attention to that. And how the Republicans are being painted into a corner is, you know, again, you have the, you know, the undynamic duo feuding with certain factions of the Republican Party and in their own way trying to force them to you know, basically to to subjugate them to supporting certain policies. And the Democrats, you know, are also painting certain, or painting the Republican Party into the corner by, you know, again, giving the Republicans a taste of their own medicine. And it's for a number of different reasons, but Go do some reading, and I posted a wall, I mean, an article on my wall talking about Mississippi and how they have the highest rejection rate in the country in regards to social safety net benefits, you know, welfare link and, you know, all of that. And, you know, and again, we've talked about on this show buzzwords. When you hear states' rights and you hear them saying they're pushing the money down to the states, this allows the states to administer the money and to administer these programs any way that they want. And the less money that they have to dole out as far as social safety nets are concerned, they get to keep that money and use it for other projects some of their pet projects. And again, this is making poor people suffer. 
And in addition to that, you know, what's happening now, again, with this threat of shutting down, they're going to make poor people suffer for that damn wall that nobody really wants to have built, except for older, you know, a lot of older white people and some white millennials that are fearful. And this is not the first time that Latinos and Hispanics have been scapegoated in this country. And, you know, what I find fascinating is when I see black people, you know, espousing these same thoughts, you know, forgetting that at one time, and it's not something of the past, it's still happening, we were the ones that they were fearful of. And once they deal with, you know, the Latinos, the Hispanics, you know, or the Latinx and Hispanics and the Spanish people, yeah, they're a little bit more, to, you know, tolerating or tolerant of Spanish people because Spain is in Europe. That's a whole different story. But, you know, once they're done with, you know, the Latinx people, the Hispanics, the Chicanos, um, then, you know, and also the Muslims, you know, we're on that list. Don't think that they're not that they don't have plans for us. And this is what I'm trying to get some of you all to understand. You need to look beyond your your personal um, views on this. You need to take a broader look at the problem. So anyway, you know, a few more minutes and we're going to go off into um, the topic today. But um, they had the little science march yesterday and, you know, they had some good numbers out there. So, yay, science, right? I posted an article that's talking about the hashtag Margin Psi, M-A-R-G-I-N-S-C-I. And so it's talking about, you know, white supremacy in this, you know, in the science march, you know, and again, you know, we talked about the white supremacy in the women's march, you know, and so you know, Raina and I had a conversation about this specifically, and it was funny because she was talking about the scientists and how it's a white male-dominated field and, you know, some of the controversy behind it. But these white men, they ain't listening to white women either, you know, let alone communities of color, which are very much so underrepresented in the science community, right? And so, you know, you can take that and you can apply that to any of these mainstream cultures and movements which are white, male-dominated and centered, right? And you have the same shit. You know, <laughs> you know, and what you need to understand is that these smaller cultures and movements and groups, they're nothing but a mirrored reflection of mainstream society as a whole. And, you know, we're, you know, some of us from these so-called marginalized communities are members of a few of these other communities, and we're seeing the issues some of us are speaking up and speaking out about these issues and getting the same type of pushback. Why? Because they don't want it to change. Why? Because they dominate these particular communities and movements and because they want them and their needs centered 
And they're not going to change that without a fight. And so what's so interesting is, you know, um, I was on a couple of panels in the past, and, you know, they were talking about science. And one of the points that I've always made then and now is when you go into certain communities, especially marginalized communities or certain ones anyway, it's not that we don't enjoy or respect or believe in science. Yeah, we do. We're playing on our computers. We go to the doctor. You know, we take the medicine, you know, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. However, science is not necessarily the center of our lives when we're trying to figure out how we're going to feed ourselves and our family, how we're going to clothe ourselves and our family, how we're going to keep a roof over our heads. Money for gas or a bus card to get back and forth to work, whether it's a single-parent household or a single household with a single person, no children, or a married household with or without children. You know, and that, that's over the entire spectrum. So it's it's just interesting because, you know, in certain communities, they've turned science or scientism, if you will, into a religion. And then they don't understand why it's not embraced so readily by certain um, members of that community. So anyway, uh, this is this you know is going to get interesting, and you know you're going to see legions of offended nerds coming out to the rescue to defend you know you know defend that bullshit. Hmm. So I got a couple of other things to talk about, but I think I'm going to table it with the exception of Paris. So I mentioned that earlier, and so they had the election today. And for those that are familiar, there's been a far-right movement throughout the world, you know, and and it was very much so um, attention-grabbing in Europe. And so... Again, Madame Le Pen, Marie Le Pen, it's kind of hard to talk about this without giving you a lot of background. So I'm going to try to be as brief and succinct as I can. So there was a so-called terrorist shooting the other day. And what was so interesting is that this happened right before the election, which is today. Now, I'm not saying that it didn't happen, that that incident didn't happen. And I'm not saying that it wasn't authentic. What I'm saying is that it was convenient. Because that incident did happen. But I find it interesting that it happened right before the election. That's all I have to say. Because in many cases, fear and chaos is created. 
And what's happening over in Europe as well as in America is that you have certain political groups that benefit from fear and chaos. And because that fear and chaos has not taken root the way that they wanted it to take root, in some cases they have to go out and create and manufacture fear and chaos. And I'm being very, very careful about, you know, how I'm wording this. I just need for you all to take a deeper look into what's happening and and go back and read some history as to having a fearful a fearful constituency and how it affects the polls. You know, and this goes back to, you know, just a lot of bullshit that's not taking root and they the powers that be don't understand because they're used to controlling the masses and there are rebellions happening and they don't understand why this is happening but most importantly they don't know how to fully control it so pay attention and I'm not just talking about Europe I'm talking about America too specifically America So, you know, moving forward, Bernie Sanders is pissing me off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't had a chance to read the abstract of that book that just came out about Hillary. I have to put that on my list of things to do. Um, I posted an article about gay French men and how they're voting for the far right. And I said not just French gay men. It's happening in America. And, you know, with the LGBTQ community, the mainstream one, how they scapegoated the black community, particularly in California, and how you see many of them now openly and boldly stating that they support the far right in a lot of those particular ideologies. But this is after they achieved marriage equality. And so I just want you guys to just kind of think about this and see what's happening because, again, you know, black, brown, red, and yellow communities are being thrown under the bus because now you have these, you know, white, gay people, you know, going over to the right now that they have what they want. And, you know, what a lot of people tend to not discuss enough is with marriage, in the contract of marriage, because that's what it is. It's about land. It's about property. It's about ownership and a number of other things. And, yes, I'm just reducing it to a few right now, but there are only these are only a few factors in the entire equation. But you need to go back and pay attention, especially with some of these white men, because what they're trying to do is restore their regular white guy status. And it's important that you understand that. And with these white women, 53% of which voted for Donald Trump, you know, I thought it was 51%, but it's actually 53%. And these are some of the same white women feminists that, you know, demanded our solidarity with that women's march, yet you voted for Trump. 
So there's a disconnect there. And, you know, I call them fair weather allies. And so, you know, um, you need to pay attention. And with some of these same allies, you know, they point to black and brown communities and say that we're the most homophobic, we're the most problematic, all of these things, while yet demanding, you know, our support. And that solidarity seems to only be going one way. So, you know, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later, not in this show, but later on down the line, because this is part one in the number of shows in this particular series. I want to give a shout-out to Rachel Dolezal. Yeah, you got read for points this week, huh? So, (laughs) you know, um, if you all get a chance, go and read that article that um, was written by you know, and see, I'm bad with these names. You guys know I can destroy some names. But it was an article, and it talks specifically about Rachel Dolezal and her performative blackness and how basically, um, again, this is a white woman centering her whiteness and centering her privilege, if you will, to be whatever race and color and and be whatever she feels that she is because she has the right to do that, you know, which feeds into, you know, a whole different conversation. But the name of the article is The Heart of Whiteness. Ijeoma Oluo interviews Rachel Dolezal, the white woman who identifies as black. And this is on the Strangers um, website. And when I say she got red, she was red for points. Okay, this was a damn good article. And I recommend it. You know, um, yeah, go out there and read that. I'm going to post it again on my wall because I posted a screenshot, and then the first comment afterwards is when I posted the link to the article. So many of you all may not have seen that, and then I didn't post it to the Black Freethinkers page or um, or the People of Color Beyond Faith page. So go on out there and, you know, read that. And it's been, you know, really interesting. So I didn't talk or touch on everything that took place or everything I had here on my little list of things to talk about. But, um, you know, again, you know, this fear and hatred of Muslims, you know, it's unjustified. And what's so interesting is I was, you know, watching some news shows, and it was talking about how, Donald Trump and Steve Bannon have been discouraged from using the phrase, you know, radical Islam terrorism, right, or radical Islam in short. And you see that a lot. You know, I see it a lot in a number of different communities when they try to justify the madness that we're seeing all over the world in regard to Islam. And this plays into the story or to the show today because, 
you know, it's that fear and and the misinformation that's coming out that was part of what fueled President Bannon to win the White House. So let me read this here. Today's show, White Christian America, Good Old Days, Part 1. And it says here, please join us as we start our series on Christian America. We plan on tackling a number of subjects and breaking down how the roots of American Christianity have been complicit with the toxic environment that we endure today. Not only will I talk about the perpetual racism that is hidden under the shield of Christianity, but how this racism created the religious right and ushered Donald Trump into the White House. We will also discuss the unholy alliance between white nationalists and black nationalists. Additionally, we will discuss how some word of faith pastors, black and white, endorsed and worked feverishly to elect Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. Additionally, I have questions for the white pastors who passed through black congregations that voted and supported Trump. We will also discuss the difference between white and black Christian identities and much more. Now, not all of that is going to be discussed today. This is part one. So next week, you know, again, I'll be talking about white Christian America but not necessarily the good old days, even though that is part of the conversations, and I will be making references to that, but we're going to take it to another topic. And, you know, again, putting these pieces together and, you know, what we're seeing now, you know, I like to call it Franken-America or Franken-America, and you have all of these different components and pieces that they're just stitching together to justify this racism, to justify this fear, to justify, you know, the xenophobia. And so, you know, when you're on the outside looking in, and when I say that, I'm talking about on the outside of mainstream America, you know, and there are some things that I do not see. Why? Because I am in America, and that's why I read periodicals from other parts of the world. And, you know, other things that I may not see because, you know, I'm a black woman. And we're living in this. And sometimes when you're living it and you're caught up in the throes of this fear and chaos, you miss things. And you don't see it, which is one of the reasons why I read as much as I do and why sometimes I find these articles fascinating because, you know, I'll read parts and it'll go ding, ding, ding. And I'm like, how the hell did I miss that? So, you know, again, we promote literacy on this show. You know, if you want to read some books, where is my phone? So, you know, I pulled up my book list. And, you know, I have a shitload of books for those, you know, that know me and know me well. You know, electronic books, you know, hardback, softback, I read. And so for some of you that want to get a better understanding, because I know I have white people listening to the show. I also know I have Christians and Muslims that listen to the show. 
you know, go look up the book by Neil Painter, History of White People. Um, we all know that I love Khalil, you know, Muhammad, and he talks about the condemnation of blackness. That's the name of his book, Condemnation of Blackness, Khalil Muhammad. Um, I love Ira Katz Nelson, When Affirmative Action Was White is one of his books. Fear Itself is another book of his, and it's talking about the New Deal. And, you know, I can give you all a number of books, you know, and I want you to go out and read them. And some of these you can find online. If you look up the name of the book, and sometimes you'll find it on Google Books. You won't be able to read the entire book, but a significant amount. You know, if you type in PDF, you'll be able to find some information about that. I'm currently, it's on my list of books to read, Defying Dixie, The Radical Roots of Civil Rights, and it's going from 1919 to 1950, and that was written by Glenda Gilmore. And, you know, Manning Marable, he wrote a book, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America, Problems in Race, Political Economy, and Society. And it's just it's a number of people, a number of books that are out there. Charles Mills, The Racial Contract, you know, because you hear us talking about social contracts. That's, you know, that's that's right here in line with this particular book and in, in what it talks about. Another one, Racism Without Races, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, and I can go on, but I won't because I need to get to the topic. But, um, yeah, you know, get out here, get to reading. You know, we definitely promote literacy around these parts. So, again, I've... I've read the notes that I put for part one, and it'll probably be the same thing for part two and part three, but we're going to be moving the subject matter around while yet overlapping it, so I want to make sure you guys understand that. And so, again, huh, what I find interesting, you know, and I got a few notes that I wrote down, is, you know, this fear and hatred of Muslims. And we've, you know, I've stated on this show that that fear, most of it, is due to the fact that Islam is a black and brown religion. And I feel that this needs to be examined and and be studied, you know, in, in regards to our current political and cultural climate that's out here. Because they've already been studying this. You know, we've been studied black, brown, red, yellow people. We've been studied all the way down to the growth of our fingernails and toenails. So, you know, again, there is documentation out there. There is history out there. You know, what I feel needs to be reexamined is this particular resurgence of this now, when I say that, it doesn't mean that this fear and hatred has gone away. When I say resurgence in this respect, as to why it's so big, why it's so loud, why is it at the forefront? Why are they centering this at this time? And part of that is, you know, the white population is starting to dwindle and die off. 
And in certain regards, they cannot figure out why this is happening. There are studies, there's research out there that, you know, that supports what I'm saying. Do some research. Like I say, you don't have to believe me. I Hey, <laughs> trust but verify. Look it up. And, you know, again, you know, going back to a point that I made, I see black people out here that are, you know, vocalizing the same fear and hatred towards, you know, people that are different, whether they're Muslim or LGBTQ, you know, Afro-Asian, Afro-Latinx, right, and a number of other categories. And, you know... Some of them are repeating dangerous rhetoric and talking points that they've gleaned from mainstream America. And some of them are living in fear because they don't know what's going to happen. And then you have some that are out there who want to maintain a status quo. Why? Because many of them are comfortable, and some of them are afraid. They're afraid of upsetting the white people. And so, you know, some of them, like I said earlier, they're perpetuating primacy and not necessarily aware of the fact that they're doing it. And then you have some out there that just don't give a damn and some that have no reason to fear Muslims, you know, what I found interesting was an article that went through my news feed earlier this week, and I'm not going to get into specifics because it's not just relegated to one specific person. Um, uh, what's his name? The atheist guy, Richard Dawkins, you know, and it was an article about him, and he was talking about how he believes that Christianity is pretty much the best answer and solution to Islam. And now, you know, for those of you that are familiar, you've heard us talking about how some of the comments made by Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Pat Kondo, and a number of you know, white atheists, while we find it so problematic, especially when they talk about Islam. But, you know, they've also made problematic statements regarding Christianity. And what I find ironic is a religion that you rail against, you want particular religion to be used as a weapon or sponge to absorb this other particular religion, which is Islam. Now, I don't know about you, but this does not make logical sense to me for a number of reasons. And so, again, it goes back to you know, mainstream people, whether in America or wherever, white people, 
they know how to control and manipulate Christianity, but they have not figured out how to manipulate and exploit Islam. So what I'm saying to those of you that are listening, whether it's live or the archives or even if someone is, you know, taking notes or in, in repeating it to you, don't you find this interesting? Seriously, don't you find it interesting? You know, anything to maintain white supremacy, right? You know, and, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, are you being set up for a damn religious war? I'm just asking questions. And I'm just trying to figure it out. Because what's so interesting is with Christianity, the way it was introduced to many black and brown folks through force. However, I also need for you all to understand that many Africans did practice Christianity before they were brought to America. That is a misnomer that I hear from white, black, brown, yellow, red people sometimes when they give their arguments for atheism. And so I just want you guys to sit back and think why were they so desperate that we embrace Christianity and that we continue to embrace Christianity until they want to change the game? And so then there's this desperation of wanting to sell atheism to communities of color, particularly black people, you need to ask yourself why. And now I know some of you are sitting there maybe a little confused and looking at your phone like, what the hell is going on with this one? You know, and what I have to say about that is coming into your own understanding, coming into your own ideology that's a personal journey. That's a personal decision. But when you have certain people out here that are nothing but salesmen and saleswomen, you need to stop, take a look, and ask yourself why. Who's going to capitalize from this? Who's going to benefit from this the most? Mainly white folks. You'll have a few black and brown people that they'll, you know, brush off a few crumbs to. And what's so interesting is when you sit back and you watch, you know, some of these same people fighting against other people that look like them is because, you know, they want the biggest crumbs. Or, you know, it's, it's just the whole thing is just interesting. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny but yet it's pitiful and it's sad. And so where is this turn of events coming from? And, you know, what I find interesting is that you have a lot of Christians, particularly white Christians, that want to turn this country into a theocracy. 
However, they only want it to be a theocracy based on Christianity, and they fear Islam and other religions, but primarily Islam, is having an, you know, an impact that they can't control. And so I guess my question is, if you want a theocracy that's, you know, basically, you know, a government that's based on religion, <laughs> you know you're dying off. And you have a lot of people leaving the church. Now, when I say they're leaving the church, that does not mean that they're becoming atheists or humanists or free thinkers. You have people out here who identify as spiritual but not religious. You have people out here that are disgruntled or dissatisfied believers. You have nuns, you know, the people that don't give a damn one way or the other, right? And a number of other, you know, identifications that are out there. But, you know, if if you're going to create policy and laws based on religion, you know, is really interesting because you only want it based on your religion. Even though we have people of other religions that are here. And it's really just a matter of time before people from other religious religious identities, before they come into power. And so this goes back to, you know, a common argument that I see and that I engage in every once in a while, because I don't like to debate. We can have a conversation, but I'm not going to debate you. That's just, you know, to me, a waste of time. You know, you cannot legislate morality. And then, you know, to be honest with you, coming from a philosophical perspective, how do you define morality? Because what's moral to one person may not be moral to another person. And so you have all these different definitions of morality out here. Who's right? You know, at the end of the day, you know, I say live your life and leave folks the hell alone. So, you know, I want you guys to think about that. You know, and Christian America, we're still trying to figure out what's going on with you guys. What is happening over there? You know, um, had a conversation this week with a friend, and we were talking about, you know, how Christians you know, and it's not just Christians, and it's not just white Christians. Black Christians do the same thing, you know, and you, other religions. But right now I'm talking about Christian America and how they tend to romanticize the past, you know, that nostalgia. And what many of them fail to do is remember past wasn't as great wasn't as wonderful as they picture it, as they, you know, paint, you know, in their particular worldview, right? There were many problems in the past. And it's funny because there's more white people that want to go back to the past. Many black folks, you know, no, we're not necessarily (laughs) down with that. Um, you know, I posted a screenshot of, you know, this this little poll, and it was talking about, you know, if you could go back to the past, what era would it be? 
and you saw all of these different, you know, bar graphs there or what have you. And then it was a category in which it says, I'm black. I don't want to go back to the past. And so it's really interesting because what they want is, again, to go back to the days when women knew where they stood. Black people were in line and knew where they stood. And, you know, it's, it's a number of this. It's a lot of context to this particular uh, mindset, right? And so, you know, when we were having this conversation, it was within the context of this last federal election and how Christians showed up in force to vote for Trump, you know, and I'm still giving white women the gas face, but I'm also looking at black men who voted for Trump. It was about 13%. And, you know, one of the things that I'm struggling with, and guys, we're going to go into overtime today. So let me just go ahead and tell you, if you want to call up the show and listen to what I have to say, you can reach us at 310-982-4273. Again, 310-982-4273, and you'll be able to hear the overtime because we only have about 27 minutes left. So I'm trying to give you more than enough notice that you may have to call in. Again, 310-982-4273. And I haven't taken any calls today. I want to get through this. I want to get through this, right? So anyway, you know, black men voted for Trump as well. Now, you know, for me personally, I'm kind of going through this internal battle. And, you know, this is hard. And, you know, I'm sitting here and, you know, I look at what's going on. And I read these articles, and then I'm on Twitter and Facebook, and a lot of times I'm just scrolling through the news feed or following certain hashtags, and I'm like, the hell is going on out here? You know, especially when I see these, you know, little wars, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And, you know, and sometimes I look at it, and when I see black women, being scapegoated, being marginalized even more, being silenced and oppressed and ignored. And, and you know, this is hard to watch. You know, not only is it hard to watch, it's hard being a black woman. And I know we've been saying for a long time, especially these past few years, that none of us are free if all of us ain't free. And I get that. But I'm ready to throw in a towel on that shit, ready to toss that right in the fucking trash. Because as a black woman, I'm tired of being scapegoated. As a black woman, and this this is it in a nutshell, as a black woman, I'm tired of being everybody's muse while at the same time being everybody's mule. You want us to carry the burden. 
you steal our words. You steal just, you know, our culture. You steal everything from us, even to the point that, you know, you're now asserting performative blackness, i.e. Rachel Dolezal. And it's like we're not even here anymore. We don't even exist. You know, you're taking everything that we identify with. You capitalize on it. You will not read our works. You will not support our works. You know, you know. look, retweeting something we said on Twitter, that don't mean shit. Pay us. Recognize us. You know, and so it's hard. And you get tired of this shit. And what's so interesting about, you know, the undynamic duo in the White House is sitting back and watching this, you know, watching in horror, this genealogy or, you know, watching this genealogical family reunion between black nationalism and white nationalism. So you got the no-tips in the Klan out here doing the electric slide and line dancing together. And it's sickening, you know, because we're sitting here and we're watching it, but it's the same mentality. It's the same toxicity, right? It's the same old bullshit. They're espousing the same thing. You just have this one group that wants it for white people, and this other group that wants it for black people, primarily white men and black men. And so we're watching this, you know, happen. And what's so interesting is, you know, some of the approval that I see coming from white Christian America in regards to, you know, this toxic conversation, you know, the the policies that, you know, they're trying to put forth – And, you know, I really don't understand it because for a lot of these white Christians, instead of Jesus being the center of your joy and the center of your life, your whiteness is the center of your world and the center of your life. And you voted as such. And what's so interesting is that some of these same good white Christians, if you will, are the same ones that will say, well, what's happening over in a black and Latino or Latinx communities? And, you know, it's a shame, you know. And, again, you know, it's still a lot of invisibility when it comes to the Asian and the Native American community. You know, I wanted to talk about that incident with United today, but I'm not – I'm going to leave it alone. I meant to mention it earlier, but I, I skipped over it. But there are a lot of good think pieces out on that. I posted a couple of them on my wall in the past um, week and a half, if you will. But, you know, what's interesting and what perplexes me are some of these good white Christians, if you will, who pastor congregations that are predominantly black and Latinx, I'm trying to figure out what's happening here. And it's not that I'm trying to figure it out. I've already figured it out. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to express this 
in such a manner that it will click for some people and other people it will challenge you to go out and do some research and to start asking questions. That is what I want to do. I want to pique your interest, ask questions. Because one of the interesting things that I encountered in Christianity, and this is across the board, whether it's white pastors or black pastors, how they control some of their congregants with certain scriptures in the Bible, one scripture that they use quite a bit is touch not mine anointed and basically do them no harm. And I've had to break that down for, you know, a few Christians in regards to the context of that particular scripture. You know, while I may be a humanist and a free thinker at this point in time, there are some things that I will have to take a spiritual stance on it to a certain degree when explaining it because I've been on the other side. And so when you talk about that particular scripture about touch not mine anointed and how many of them are now claiming that Donald Trump is anointed, you know, they're saying that you're not supposed to speak out. Donald McClurkin, you know, and, and one of the Marys from Mary Mary, I think it was Erica, and, but it may be the other one, so my apologies there. I can't think of which one it was. But basically they're saying let go and let God. And you hear that from a number of Christians, you know, black or white, in regards to Donald Trump, in regards to the white supremacy, in regards to just, you know, a number of things that are happening in this country. However, they don't let go and let God when they are bashing the LGBTQ community and a number of other communities that are out here. But anyway, I digress, and let me get back to where I was going with this particular um, part of the show. So when that scripture says, touch not mine anointed, it is talking about doing physical harm. It's not regarding speaking truth to power, okay? And so this is not where I was trying to go with this show today, but this is where I'm going because this is what is on my mind now. So, you know, they try to use that scripture to silence people, and then they want to say that, you know, some of the scuttlebutt or the water cooler talk that's happening, they want to reduce it to gossip, and and they do what they can to try to to squash or quell the conversation that's taking place because in many cases there is some truth to what's being said right and so you know one of the things that you know I broke down to some Christians you know while having this conversation I said well You know, David spoke truth to power when he criticized Saul. And when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, he didn't do it, right? And so then you had Nathan who criticized David and didn't take the opportunity to bring physical harm to David, but he spoke truth to power. And the same thing when 
Paul criticized Peter. And, you know, there are a number of different examples of that in the Bible, but they spoke truth to power, and they were not struck dead. And so, you know, one of the things that happens happens in the church is that you have these pastors that have a lot of influence over their congregants. And one of the things that's happening with this Trump-Bannon administration, one of the things they want to do is get rid of the Johnson rule. And with the Johnson rule, basically that was set up to allow the IRS to audit and shut down 501c3s or religious organizations. And even now you have um, secular organizations, just a number of organizations across the board. But basically they're not supposed to endorse any candidates and, and talk politics as far as their personal ideology and recommending that their congregants vote a certain way or for certain people. And so with the Trump Trump-Bannon administration, they want to, you know, basically strike that Johnson rule and allow the churches to speak about certain political topics, endorse political candidates, but it goes even further than that. They want to allow these churches to also become you know, like political action committees or super PACs, meaning they can collect, you know, a lot of money, you know, gross amounts of money, and then they can pour that into the political campaigns of certain, you know, politicians, of you know, of any of them that they want. But, you know, they want to give them that power. And in addition to that, and I want you guys to go out, I want you to research what I'm saying because I want you to read it for yourself. And I want you to come to your own understanding. Don't repeat what I said. Find out for yourself. So in addition to that, the Trump-Bannon administration is trying to give churches the authority to have their own police forces. Now, you need to think about that. You need to think long and hard about that. And so, you know, what's interesting is I want to see, you know, how they're going to push that and only allow it to be Christian churches because I think that's the direction that they want to go in. But, you know, that's going to be a major point of contention. But, you know, I want you to think about what that means and the type of power that they will be giving the church, particularly Christians. In addition to that, they want to push the social safety net programs off of the federal register pass some down to the states, but pass the majority over to the churches. And they don't have the resources or the knowledge to maintain that type of money. And I just see corruption coming from it. So, you know, again, pay attention. But going back to that particular scripture of Touch Not Mine Anointed, you know, they're taking it beyond the wall of, you know, the walls of that particular church. They're trying to, you know, apply that 
to certain politicians, you know, by saying that God anointed and appointed them to be in control, you know, at this time. And that it's time for Christianity to make its comeback because there is this so-called war on Christianity. There's this so-called war on morality. And so I just need for you all to pay more attention and to look at the bigger picture and the impact that this will have on our society. However, I'm trying to understand how they're going to allow this for one particular religious group but not the other. And so you need to figure out and take a look to see where that balance is coming from because there is no balance right now. But, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch all of this play out. But they're, they're again, putting forth that particular scripture to stop the criticism of the Trump-Bannon, you know, um, administration here. And, you know, one thing that I want you guys to remember is that, you know, the Ku Klux Klan and a lot of these white nationalist organizations and groups, you know, they're good old Christians too now. That's what they say. This is a Christian organization. So, you know, and then, you know, <laughs> you know, will it be, you know, public beheadings of people who disagree with you know, the, the, the good old Christian teachings of the white nationalists. You know, what's so interesting about some of these black nationalists, some of them are Christian, the majority of them are not. And so there are many different groups that fall within the black nationalists category. You know, I think there's over 13,000 different denominations and churches within the white Christian community, right, or just the Christian community in general, because I do have to factor in um, the black, Latino, Asian, and indigenous Christian communities into that, but it's well over 13,000 different ideologies or denominations or whatever you want to call it. But again, it's, it's going to feel, it's going to get to a point where you feel as though you are under a gag order and not able to speak your truth, which is why it's important for us to have these independent journalists. And I remember posting an article, and you can find this on NPR, about how donations are coming in for nonprofit journalists. Um, organizations, and there are plenty of them out there. And like I said, I'm going to try to remember to bring a list and read it off to you or post it or something this week. But, you know, you all need to pay attention to what they're doing because they're trying to control your speech. They're trying to control what you say. They're trying to control what you see. They're trying to control what you think. Now, if you're going to be in fear of anything, you should be in fear of that because you have people like Pat Robertson and Franklin Graham and a number of other very public and vocal white Christians that are out here condemning anyone who critiques this current administration or critiques any of the you know, so-called Christian leaders that support this 
you know, administration. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, sometimes when I talk about these particular subjects, you know, you know, it rattles some people and it ruffles some feathers. You know, one thing I want you to think about is, you know, when you hear the, you know, scuttlebutt that's happening within the church about something that someone in church leadership is or is not doing, that they'll say, touch not mine anointed. But aren't you all the Christians, little anointed ones, you know, the people sitting in the pews, aren't you anointed? You know, and it's funny how that particular scripture is only applicable to the church leadership, but not to you. Because, you know, many of these pastors have no problem making you the object and the subject of their sermons. So, you know, you need to think about that as well. But, you know, it's so funny because it's like I've had people, you know, that have had, you know, one issue or another with me because sometimes when I say certain things, you know, I'm not very tactful about it, if you will. And so, you know, well, Kim, you know, can you be a little bit more nuanced with what you say? And Kim, you know, can't you say it this way or, or, or you know, put it in this particular context or leave this person or that person out of your monologues or, you know, just don't mention their names? No. I'm going to talk about these folks. I'm going to talk about what they're doing, and I'm going to talk about why it's problematic. You know, and, you know, what's so funny is they want to silence you regarding certain people but have no problem, you know, defaming you, right? And so, you know, I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'm going to say what I want to say is my show. Take it as you will. And I am not going to apologize for telling the truth. You know, I used to be one of those people I would just dial it back and just ignore things just to keep the peace. You know, very milquetoast about certain things. It's not like that anymore. Because, you know, what, one of the things that I observed is, you know, I was the only one making concessions. So, you know, never again, Right. And so you have all of this going on, and we only have five minutes left to this show. So if you're interested in listening to the overtime live, you can dial into 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273. And so, yeah, we're going to go on for a little bit, you know, a little bit more because I want to talk about what happened in America. But before the show goes into overtime, I want to throw these statistics at you guys. 74% of white evangelicals believe that, you know, the American culture has changed for the worse since the 50s. And this is a public religion research institute study, right? And, um, and, and, and it's just it's interesting. It says here 62% of African Americans, 57% of Hispanic Americans think that the American culture has changed for the better, right? And 
81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. They voted to make America great again, to make America white again. So, you know, you need to pay attention to that. So 74% of white evangelicals believe that this country has changed for the worse since the 1950s. You know, um, 81% of the white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. And so, you know, another thing that I want to make sure I get to before um, this cuts off is that you have a lot of white evangelicals leaving the church or leaving their churches because of the election of Donald Trump. And so you have a lot of people that are leaving for a number of different reasons, but it says it's approximately 10% of evangelicals, 18% of mainline Protestants, and 11% of Catholics that have left their particular churches or parishes because of you know, many of the leadership in that church were leaning toward Donald Trump. You know, and this, you know, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of money. You know, and that's what it all boils down to. And so um, they said for over 20 years that liberal to moderate evangelicals have been leaving their churches because they disagreed with the Christian right. And it's important for you guys to know that and to recognize what's happening and, you know, how you have all these different pieces moving around the chessboard. Now, if you want to make the hairs on, you know, your body stand up, I want you to go back and look up Bob Jones University and, the you know, the beginnings of the religious right. Go look up, you know, Bob Jones University and the lawsuit behind that, particularly the lawsuit or the court case of Green versus Connolly in 1972. It's important that you look that up, Green versus Connolly, C-O-N-N-A-L-L-Y, 1972. And what happened was the IRS rescinded the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University because of their um, discrimination and you know, racist policies. And members of... You know, um, the white evangelical community in the South were very angry about that because basically, you got to remember, many of them moved their children from public schools when public schools were desegregated and moved them into private schools, which were primarily Christian schools. And you need to go back, you need to look look that up. And then you need to link it with what we're seeing today in the push for school choice vouchers, you know, school choice and these vouchers. And you need to look up the history on how money at one point, you know, it was taken away from public schools and given to private schools, whereas black and brown children were left with getting no education even though their parents paid taxes. There is a history of this. So I want you to go out and look that up. And I know I'm not going to get to that by the end of the show today, but it's important that you look that up because we're going to pick it up next week. I'm going to pick particular part up for next week. But, yeah, go out and, you know, look up Bob's, you know, Bob Jones University, and they even apologize for their racist past. 
you know, so go ahead. You know, look, there are NPR shows talking about Christianity and a religious right. So if you want to be ahead of me, go on and, and um, look that up. So anyway, we're going to go back to where where I was, you know, talking about, um, you know, what's happening in this country with these pastors, you know, particularly white, you know, Christian or religious leaders that are out here trying to basically, you know, take hostage, take hostage conversation and, 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 and force people to, you know, have your opinions but keep it to yourself, right? And so you'll hear some of these same people, these white Christians, romanticizing the past and wishing for the days of, you know, some examples, Leave It to Beaver and Andy Griffin and, you know, that particular um, type of mindset in that world, even though it was make-believe then. You know, and and one thing I will say is that Andy Griffith, you know, he vocalized that. You know, he gave a number of talks talking about the society that was portrayed in his show, how it was make-believe. They made it all up. However, you have people that believe that and and believe that to be so and believe that that was attainable. And that is one of the reasons why we have – so many problems, you know, in a number of different communities and a number of different households um, in this country, right? And so you need to understand, you know, where these thought processes are coming from. But most importantly, I want you guys to understand that that was fictitious. And so while you have all of this happening, you know, you have people, primarily white people, blaming all the ills of today and of this world on anything that's different from them. You know, they want to go back to a time when, you know, everything was white male-centered, and we've made tremendous progress and they want to dial that back, you know, kind of ties into what I was talking about earlier. But those days were never here. And the days that you are romanticizing, you know, in in your thoughts. And the thing is, is that, you know, someone gave an example. I'm trying to remember who it was. Well, anyway, I know it was a white woman, and I can't think of who it is. And I'm just going off the cuff right now. But she was talking about how she had a memory from her childhood and how she had, you know, gone to the Bozo Show. For those of you that remember or don't remember the Bozo Show, it was a show for children that had Bozo the Clown and a number of things, but it's it's an older show. And how she was, you know, to, to try for the grand prize, right? So you had to throw a ball into the little buckets, until you got to the final bucket and you won the big prize. And she was reminiscing about how that was one of the happiest days of her life. And so apparently she had a conversation with her mother, and she was telling her mother how happy she was and how that was one of her happiest memories, only for her mother to tell her that that never happened, that it was her sister 
who won the grand prize and that participated in the game. And so, you know, you have a lot of different situations such as that. And, um, you know, it's interesting, but, you know, for many, you know, those days were never here. And not only were they never here, we're never returning to whatever, you know, idyllic um, America that you have in mind. That's that's not going to happen. But in addition to that, you know, the manufacturing jobs that have left this country, they're not coming back either. And so when I sit back and, you know, I do some reading and read the rationale of some people as to why they supported the Trump-Bannon administration, and, you know, especially with some of them that have all of these horrible and negative viewpoints of people of color, particularly black people, you know, their reasoning is flawed. Their premise is flawed. And trying to get them to understand that, you know, it feels like just, you know, running top speed into a brick wall. And one of the things that, you know, I stress and I need for you all to understand, and this is just across the board, all people, we live in a society that is, you know, built on and and demands instant gratification. And, you know, you have a lot of people out here that don't want to do the research. They don't want to do the reading. They don't want to do the work to learn. So they'll go out and watch some YouTube videos or listen to some podcasts or pick up a couple of tweets or, you know, Facebook statuses or, you know, briefly proofread some article and then present themselves to be subject matter experts. And, you know, if you question these people, especially within the proper and correct context of the subject matter, many of them, they don't know what to say. All they have are the talking points, and they don't necessarily understand what they are talking about. And what's so interesting is in some cases, you know, the ones that have a better understanding they only understand one side of the equation. And I have people sometimes that would get upset or angry because I post articles that have opinions and and thought processes or viewpoints that are the antipathy of what I believe. I think that's a good thing because you need to learn how to balance out your arguments. You need to understand what they're saying and doing, where they're thought process, where it begins and where it ends, as far as whatever it is you're researching. But, you know, it's interesting because it's like a lot of these people, a lot of these white Christians, again, you know, they find ways to justify white male domestic terrorists, terrorism, right? And when I say that, you know, again, we know that there is a bias in the media and how these stories are portrayed. And, you know, what, what's happening is you have some white men that are out here declaring war on wayward white women who don't know their place with all of their silly foolish talk about equal rights, feminism, and birth control, right? 
and and you have these white men, you know, creating policies and laws to restrict the autonomy of white women. And I mean, it's other people too, but right now I'm talking about white women specifically. And what's so interesting about that is that the 53% of white women that voted for Donald Trump, you know, some of them have regrets. Some of them, again, you know, they're sticking with it, you know, because, again, that whiteness is centered. And I've seen conversations and articles in which these same white women stated that they didn't necessarily believe that Donald Trump meant what he was saying. And they didn't believe he was going to do, you know, some of the things that he's done and some of the rhetoric that he was espousing. They thought it was just hyperbole. And once they realized that it wasn't hyperbolic, that, you know, he actually was going to try to, you know, write up um, executive orders and have laws passed to um, enact you know, these these troubling and problematic policies that he wanted to put in place, then they wanted a march. And they wanted all of us to march with them, even though they heard the rhetoric that the Trump-Bannon administration was espousing about, you know, marginalized communities across the board. But you voted for him anyway and got angry when he tried to take your birth control away from you, your birth control and abortions. You know, and so it's interesting, you know, and these same people that justify, you know, the white male domestic terrorism that's happening in this country, you know, then they point at the LGBTQ community and say that the gays brought plagues and disasters, you know, upon America and that gays should be forced and chased back into their proverbial closets and that, you know, you know, white America, particularly, you know, white men, you know, those manly men should nail those closets shut from the outside. You know, and, you know, you hear this rhetoric, especially from quite a few of these white Christian male figures, right? And so then you have some of these same white men, you know, that are perpetuating domestic terrorism on the rest of us in this country. They're saying that black people have lost their way and that blacks and Latinos are beside themselves and need to be taken to task and brought to heel, you know, like the dogs they are, and, and, and you know, they, they need to be put back in their place, you know, and brought down the sides. I mean, you hear this type of rhetoric, you know, not only from white Christian, you know, male Leaders, you know, you hear this from politicians, you hear this from everyday white people, you know, and and it's troubling, you know, and especially when, you know, we had that comment from Hillary about, you know, bringing black youth and black people, bringing them, you know, to heal. And so, you know, I'm seeing this, and it's not just blacks, they're talking about Latinx people as well. And so... Is interesting, especially when they focus on black men, 
And again, these white male domestic terrorists, you know, want to stop black men from having their way with their white women and leading their white women astray like only a talented Pied Piper could, right? You know, you know, I look at this, and I know a week or two before the election, I talked about Donald Trump being a master Pied Piper and leading, you know, a parade of of white people to the White House, you know, to make America great again, make America white again. You know, it's just, you know, I have these images in my head, and, you know, I, you know, I share them with you, but, you know, you have a lot of this happening, you know, and then you have what we call the white gaze, right? And so there was an incident that happened most recently, and I don't have the young man's name, but I saw it going through my news feed. And, you know, what's so troubling about the bias of the media and how these stories are being reported that is is done in such a fashion that it's no longer shocking that, you know, that these incidents are being, you know, they're commonplace now. And so with this particular incident, it was a 12-year-old black boy playing basketball with his non-black friends. And the police came up and pulled a gun on that black young man. This is happening over and over. And so when I start talking about the white gays in this particular situation, what they do is they ignore the innocence of our children to justify harming and killing them, especially without due process of the law, and then turn around and state that, oh, they didn't look like a 12-year-old, they looked grown, and make excuses for that type of behavior and that type of children, and you wonder why I'm tired. But see, that's part of the process. That's part of the agenda that they have to get us to the point that we're too tired to fight back, that we become too jaded to speak up and speak out. You know, that's that's part of that particular agenda. And, you know, it's happening more and more. And, you know, you have people, you know, I mentioned Rachel Dolezal earlier, you know, what's interesting about you know, white people, particularly white men that make up excuses for what she did and what other white women do, you see a lot of black men coming to the defense of, you know, these particular people and their their actions because you see more black men out here defending (laughs) Rachel Dolezal than I've seen white men. And so, you know, it's gotten to the point that with some of these white women that they envied and decided to factor black women all the way out of the conversation to the point that they declare themselves transracial and, you know, performative blackness. And so, you know, we see all of, of this happening and black women being factored out more and more, not only in you know the you know from the white mainstream viewpoint but also from a lot of black men 
and some black women. So, you know, it's just it's a lot of things happening, you know, and what's so, you know, problematic and troubling about it is that you'll see, you know, some blacks in the community in the background cheering on this type of behavior, cheering on this type of situation and not caring about who's hurt and who's harmed in this particular situation. And, you know, I spoke earlier about how some of these black men that have, you know, a following, whether it's YouTube or, you know, podcasts or um, or even, you know, a blog or what have you, they just have a platform. And they, huh, you know, you know I want to ask them, do you really hate your mother that much? You know, are you really angry at her? You know, some of them don't even realize what they're doing. Some of them do. Some of them are doing this just to capitalize off of that anger and resentment and bitterness to enrich themselves. Some of them don't believe this, but the majority of them do. And you have black women who are being sacrificed at every turn. You know, they're getting beat down, not only, you know, in the streets, but verbally, you know, so physically and verbally, and being blamed for every ill of the word. And that's just not from black men, but, you know, from a lot of white people, particularly white women, especially when they cannot force black women in general to support whatever causes that they may have. You know, and then, you know, we're being gaslighted all over the place. Who wouldn't get tired of that? Who wouldn't, you know? And so, you know, we talk about these things. And, you know, I've seen it in my life, not only through personal experiences, you know, and, you know, I've, I've had this experience from black women as well. You know, you know, I see how, you know, members of my family, friends, you know, black women in general, how they, you know, have had to deal with, you know, being the villain and being demonized. And I'm just, you get tired of it. And it makes you wonder, why do I even try? And so, you know, I was thinking about it. I'm like, maybe I need a vacation. Maybe I need some wine. For those of you who know me, I don't drink. But, you know, Maybe a little wine will help me to relax. I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure what I should be doing. You know, at this point, all I have is my voice. And, you know, I'm sharing my thoughts. And, you know, even doing this show and continuing this show is a battle, you know, because, you know, every year right around this time, you know, we're coming up on our anniversary. We started this show, you know, um, April of 2011, and every year I go through this, should I, you know, let the show go, you know, do I really want to continue doing this, and for the era, you know, the atmosphere that we're living in now, I think it's more important than ever to have, you know, shows out here that are independent, especially shows that, you know, 
are from people in marginalized communities because, again, we're being silenced, you know, being factored out of the conversation. And this happens, you know, more often than we even, you know, care to realize and talk about. But, you know, we're keeping on, you know, this year was a little difficult for me because, like I said, it's a number of things happening. And so, um, you know, the shit gets old. And you get tired of defending yourself. You get tired of constantly being on the defense. And you get tired of sitting back and watching, you know, black and brown, red and yellow women out here telling their truth to be heckled, you know, telling their truth to be dismissed, telling their truth and trying to affect real change only to be undermined. You know, you get tired of seeing it, but you got to keep moving, and you got to keep moving forward, and you have to keep, you know, bringing this issue, bringing these issues, you know, to the forefront and not allowing it to just pass by. You know, silencing ourselves and being quiet and just watching is one of the reasons why we have regressed, you know, is one of the factors And so we cannot allow that. We can't just sit on our hands and say nothing and do nothing. And so sometimes I sit back and I think about these things and think about the show and what I've been doing and, you know, where I'm going and what I'm trying to do. And I laugh and I'm like, do I have too much time on my hands? You know, but it's like I feel as though I'm not doing enough. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, talking to certain friends and colleagues, you know, they they marvel because, you know, they tell me, you're sick, Kim, and, you know, you're dealing with all of these different issues, not only with yourself, but people that are close to you, but you still manage to do more than most able-bodied people do, you know, and so it, it's interesting. It gets daunting. And um, it's tiresome, especially when some of the people that you're trying to assist or defend or to lift up, they're the very same ones that are fighting you. You know, and so, again, the system is not necessarily broken, You know, we hear that a lot. I used to say that a lot. But, again, with my evolution of thought and, you know, with my growth and, again, with reading and and allowing other people to pour into me and to share with me, I've kind of come to the conclusion that the system isn't broken. It's working exactly the way it was programmed to work. And so this is why you hear a lot of us saying, that it is the white community's job to deconstruct and destroy the system that greatly benefits them, that was put together to advance them. And so, you know, it's just, again, we talk about leveling the playing field, and that helps a little bit, but it doesn't make it even. And so, anyway... You know, it's it's just, it's crazy. 
But, you know, talking about white Christian America and what's happening, it's a lot. And we're going to be talking about this over the next several shows. You know, I didn't get a chance to get to everything today that I wanted to get to, but I think we got off to a really, really good start. You know, next week I know I'm going to talk about the election of the Trump Bannon undynamic duel and how it was astounding and painful at the same time for myself. But I knew President Bannon was gonna win. And a lot of that has to do with the attitudes of just Americans in general. So if you want to get ahead of me and kind of understand where I'm coming from a little bit better next week, I want you to go out and do some Google searches on Bob Jones University, how it apologized for his racist past, but also how the religious right came into formation, how they became. Because a lot of people are under the misunderstanding that the religious right came from the case of Roe v. Wade and abortion. And that is not what created or or motivated, you know, the, the religious, the beginning of the religious right movement. It has everything to do with Bob Johnson University. I'm sorry, Bob Jones University. I've probably been saying Johnson the whole show. Forgive me, you guys. But Bob Jones University and the court case Green versus Connolly from 1972. So look that up because this started when the IRS took tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University because of their racist policies. So, you know, it's, it's interesting for the fact that you you hear a lot then and you hear a lot now from these religious leaders about how America needs a revival. Yet, you know, one of the problems is they have a hard time galvanizing their base, right? And that's just not within the Christian community. That's all over the place, trust me. And, you know, but they have a hard time galvanizing their case. However, when people got angry about the Bob Jones University what it did is it sparked a fire, and that was exploited and manipulated to create the religious right. So, you know, if you go back and you think about some of the lessons that came out of the Bible, remember, they hated, you know, anyone that collected taxes. Just go back, you know, about them sitting in a tree and a tax collector and, you know, all the drama around that. And, you know, even now, you know, if a lot of these people, especially with some of these tea partiers and certain factions of the libertarians, you know, and, and especially with these sovereign folks, and that's black and white, not wanting to pay taxes and having a problem with the Internal Revenue Service and how it's set up. Go back and, you know, look all that information up. Another thing that I want you guys to look up in preparation for next week, I want you to look up Jimmy Carter. You know, I'm not sure if you all ever thought about this, but I've always wondered why 
you know, white people or America in general, but mainly mainstream America, why they hated Jimmy Carter so much. Now, I know one of the reasons why is because Jimmy Carter was, you know, implementing policies and laws to try to help the black community, black, brown, you know, um, communities of color, right? And that was one of the reasons why they hated him. However, I want you to look this up. Um, Jimmy Carter had an intervention. He intervened against Christian schools and apparently was trying to deny them tax-exempt status. You know, and this was based on segregation, based on the fact that a lot of these schools were segregated. And that is one of the reasons why they hate Jimmy Carter to his day and one of the reasons why he was not reelected. You know, because Jimmy Carter is absolutely brilliant. He was one of the best presidents that we've ever had in this country. I have a lot of respect for Jimmy Carter. If you go and you look up, you know, some of the things that he's been doing since, you know, his presidency, Habitat for Humanity, a lot of outreach. You know, he talks about his Christianity, and he talks about how, you know, women are oppressed. And a lot of that is, you know, done using the Bible as a shield. Same thing with racism. So, you know, go and go and look it up. You know, and you know, again, you know, you had the federal government denying Christian schools tax exempt status. Uh, you know, this is what fueled a lot of that anger and discontent. So, again, you know, you had white people taking their children out of public schools because the public schools were integrated, yet they wanted the private schools to maintain a non-exempt status while also taking federal dollars. And so I want you to think about that. You know, think about the funding of private schools. Think about this charter school movement think about, you know, the monies that they want from, you know, federal and state governments to fund these private charter schools and these private schools. This is another way to promote segregation in some regards. And so right now it's under the umbrella of school choice. And you'll hear a lot of these white Christian, you know, political you know, politicians out here espousing these views. But again, you know, the lines are being blurred. So, you know, again, I guess we're going to go back to separate but equal. That's what a lot of these people want. So, again, pay attention. You'll hear the buzzword, states' rights. You'll hear that a little bit more often. And, you know, what's happening with school choice and charter schools and it's a lot of bullshit behind that. So anyway, I'm not going to take up your whole day, but, you know, again, this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. So much more to talk about, so much more to this conversation, and I plan on picking it up next week. So, again, white Christian America, 
and it's going to be something else, part two. So I really need to go through and um, put some notes together so I can put this in its particular order. But, yeah, I think we're also going to do a little bit of Bible study eventually. It's probably be a different show. But I want to talk about how these scriptures are being used to manipulate folks and how some of that is bleeding over into society as a whole, but also within the secular, you know, community. And one of the things that you will hear from, you know, quite a few of these white Christians, these good old white Christians, is their fear and anger about secular progressivism about secular society, not necessarily the secular community specifically, because the secular community is still rather small. You know, you have a lot of people leaving the church, but just because they're leaving the church, that does not mean that they're going over to the secular community. And the secular community is, yet again, a mirror image of mainstream society. But most importantly, is also a mirror image of the religious community. And we've been talking about this for years. So, you know, eventually I'm going to end up doing a show and just nailing it to the wall and doing the whole contrast. Because, again, you know, I've had to correct myself and not say that certain particular problems are specifically because of religion or even non-religion, is because of human nature, the state of the human condition. So anyway, this is Kim of Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Again, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Ask questions, challenge the system, challenge the status quo. Do not be afraid to open your mouth. Do not be afraid to admit, you know, when you're wrong. You know, changing your mind and changing your mindset and your attitude and your thought process, that's growth. That is growth. And if you're around things or people that aren't growing, you need to be asking yourself why. So until next Sunday, my people, you all enjoy your week. Have a great rest of the Sunday. I'm hoping that it's nice and warm and, you know, things to do in the next week that will keep you amused, entertained, challenged, and, you know, thinking outside of the box. You know, having people push you out of your comfort zone and stretch, you know, stretch these, you know, just just stretch your mind. You know, that's a good thing. All right, everybody. Take care. Goodbye.